Hey everybody, this is Dylan with the Scripture Chronicles. Thanks for tuning into the show. Some big news, we have launched a YouTube channel. To find the YouTube channel, simply search Scripture Chronicles on YouTube. Also, don't forget to check out our website, www.thebibleisastory.com. There you can access the YouTube channel, the podcast, the blog, and other resources. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Scripture Chronicles, the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan. Joining me today is Corey Howitt, as usual. Corey, how's it going? Doing good. I got a haircut just for today's episode. Guys, how does Corey's hair look? I think it looks pretty good. Come on, guys. Stop it. That's too much. Anyway, guys, uh, as is our custom... We're going to go ahead and give you guys a quick recap of last week's episode. However, if you did not listen to that one, or if you haven't listened to any of the episodes preceding this one, I would recommend that you go back and listen to those. They do build on one another, where in Exodus currently, if you don't have time to listen to every single episode that has so far been released on Genesis and Exodus, at least listen to the ones on Exodus. It'll give you the context of where we're going today. Today, we are going to try and cover chapter 12 through 18. We'll see if we actually make good on that promise, but uh, we're going to go ahead and give our recap. So last week, we went through the plagues, right? So the plagues don't start until chapter seven of Exodus. So chapter five, we have Moses saying, let my people go. And again, as he's done a couple of times, they tell us, the reader, that God wants his people to come out for a little journey into the wilderness. But if God does not harden Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh will just let them go and take a three days journey to worship God on Mount Horeb slash Sinai. And then they'll come back into Egypt and still be slaves. But in chapter five, Moses requests, hey, let us go a three day journey. This is verses uh, three and four, but Pharaoh's response is really harsh. And he says, they need to work harder. They're lazy. They're wanting time off. So we're going to make their work harder. And the harder work comes in forms of they need to make their own bricks without the Egyptians collecting straw for them. So they need to do more to make the bricks and still come up with the same output of work. And so it's a really sad time for the Hebrews. They're not really believing in Moses or Aaron. But... God continues to show himself faithful. Chapter 6, verse 3 of Exodus, we saw God tell Moses that you're the only person I've given my personal name Yahweh to. We we went into a little bit of that, but it was just a really big deal that Yahweh didn't reveal his name to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, but only now, right? Because this is a really big deal and Yahweh wanted to comfort Moses and let him know that he is with them, right? And then we have a, what seems like a really random genealogy, but it's to show the line of Levi and how it leads to Moses and Aaron. And this Levite line is going to be really important later on in this book and in the books to follow. And it got us to our main protagonist of the next few books, Moses. And then from chapters 
7 on down to chapter 12, we have the 10 plagues. And we made the pitch of the idea that um, the plagues have to do with um, an anti-creation in Egypt. Right. So, so far in the book of Exodus, we've seen tons of ties or hyperlinks back to the beginning of Genesis. And that's no different in the plagues, although there's tons of people saying that you need all these different outside resources to understand the significance of these plagues. And we said, no, that the Bible um, interprets the Bible. And so we see God showing that he is the God of creation um, by bringing this these different acts of decreation upon the land of Egypt, kind of like how he brought um, a quicker and swifter decreation in Noah's day with the flood, right? We, we saw that um, by people's rebellion, they were bringing upon this decreation on their own, right? And so God has kind of sped it up in punishment. So now God is again showing, I am the God of creation and the God of decreation if I want to. And sure enough, um, he wants to enact punishment on Pharaoh and on the land of Egypt for the way in which they're treating uh, God's people, which is uh, very harsh and without any compassion, which is very far from God's ideals in which he made humanities, uh, humanity for that we've seen in the beginning of Genesis. So again, the one big point that we kind of made there at the end of the episode last week is the idea that scripture interprets scripture. You do not need to look outside of the book in order to understand the book. The book actually creates what we called a narrative world, meaning that even though it is historical, meaning that it's telling of true events that actually happened, it actually creates a narrative outside of history that is to be understood on its own terms. So it's not to say it's not historical. It's not to say that it's false, but instead that you don't actually have to look outside of the book, say at other history in order to understand this book. So it really does show you everything that you need to know to understand it. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into chapter 12 today. So at the end of last week's episode, we kind of left on I guess a cliffhanger of sorts where we talked about the last plague, the death of the firstborn, and we introduced it. We talked a little bit about it, and then we said we'd probably cover it a little bit more detail this week. And the reason being is now we get into Passover. And so Passover is going to be something that is going to be very huge in the scriptures, very huge for Israel themselves. This is going to be one of the leading signs that we see constantly referred to, and it's going to have Christological significance. That is, it's going to refer forward to Christ. And we're going to see that in the Hebrew Bible as we move forward. And then finally, once we do get into the New Testament, we're going to see that really be brought to life. So with that chapter 12, talking about the final plague, the death of the firstborn, and basically what Israel is supposed to do in order to be spared that same fate that Egypt is going to uh, to suffer. So Egypt is going to lose the firstborn son of every household, including Pharaoh. Now, Israel is being instructed to do something very specific so that the same thing doesn't happen to them. Yeah, so Israel is told that they need to make a sacrifice of a lamb. 
because in this last and final plague, God is going to kill all the firstborn sons of everything, right? And so the people, they need to prepare a Passover lamb and sacrifice it. And on this first Passover ever, they need to put the blood on their doorposts. So that way, when God's punishment in the form of uh, the angel of death comes over these different homes in Egypt, uh, the ones with the blood of the sacrificial lamb will be saved. This is the inaugural of the feast of Passover. The idea of Passover is that the blood of the lamb will cover over God's people are told, if you want to be covered, do these things. And so then God says, this is what I want you guys to do forever. This actually, when you guys break out of this place, um, this month will be the first month of your calendar year from now on. This is such a big event that it's going to shake up the way you even tell time. When God acts, it, it shakes up everything. So that's the idea here. So God says, let, let this be a big mark in your history book and in your calendar, right? So he gives all sorts of different instructions about um, how to prepare the Passover lamb and also how to prepare the bread. You're not going to have any leaven in your bread. You're going to have unleavened bread. These are the ways in which you're going to remember this big salvation event. This is going to be the last plague. This is going to this is going to be when I save you from your captor, Egypt. And we talked a long while back, but the name of Egypt in Hebrew, the Hebrew word is Mitzrayim, and that means the oppressor. So God is saving his people from the oppressor. This is a big salvation event that Passover celebrates as it looks back. But this celebration, this feast of Passover, isn't just something that looked back at what God did, like God's other feasts and festivals. Um, they all look forward to something else, some other great act of salvation by God. Um, we saw that as we went through, uh, I believe it was our second podcast when we were talking about creation. And the seven days of creation, it, it built up this common theme of separation to where the last day, the seventh day of rest was separated from everything else. And in this way, God says, you will celebrate the Sabbath because of God resting in the past, but also in the future, there will be an ultimate rest. So in the same way, you're going to celebrate Passover because what God did here in the past with Moses and with Egypt, but the way you celebrate it is also going to be looking to some great act of salvation in the future, right? And we even see that in the way in which you are to prepare this lamb. For example, don't break any of its bones, right? And that goes right into a clear passage of Jesus on the cross, and not one of his bones were broken. And just as the psalmist promises and prophecy that none of the uh, sacrificial lambs, in this case, Messiah's bones will be broken. So it's looking back, but also looking forward. And we'll see more feasts that God institutes do this exact same thing as we get to them. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I want to reiterate is that we did see in Genesis that the sun 
and moon were placed into the sky, not necessarily for what we would consider its main purpose, light, but instead that it would be a symbol, a sign for feasts and festivals. And so these feasts and festivals, as we get to them and as we see them unfold, are really going to be the crux of Israel's worship experience. They are going to be the means by which Israel is reminded and the means by which Israel worships God. And so they serve as signs, not just for the people at that time, but also for future generations or to be telling their kids about these things. And so this one in particular, it does say uh, that it's going to fulfill that role. We get to the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn in verse 29 of chapter 12. And we see that those who follow through with the Passover instructions are, as the name would imply, passed over. Those who do not, namely the Egyptians, see that their firstborn is killed. And it's kind of interesting. Corey pointed this out to me, I think, last week. But it says that the firstborn of the livestock die. Didn't we already have a plague where the livestock died? I think the livestock have died like three times now. Where the heck are they getting all these livestock? Corey, what, what, the, what the heck's going on with the livestock? you have any thoughts there? Resurrection? No, I don't know. It, it's weird. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really weird. So the Bible will sometimes um, speak in hyperbole or phenomenologically. It's like, oh, and all of the livestock died with this plague. Well, they didn't all die. But a lot of them did. All right. And let's say with like the plague for hail that says anything that's not moved inside will get killed. So maybe they had some things that were inside. We're not really told, but we have the idea that they had a lot. And with each plague, which the livestock were affected, a lot of them were killed. And so at this point, when they're just down and out, we're wondering if they have any more they do have more just to be punished more by the Lord. So yeah, it's kind of interesting how the wording works out. But from there, we talked about last week how the Hebrews plundered the Egyptians as they're going out saying, hey, that's a nice necklace. Could I take it? And God gave them favor. So they went out with riches. And then as we go into chapter 13, we see that God asks his people to consecrate all the firstborn to him, right? And consecrate, the Hebrew word is kodesh, which is the same Hebrew letters for to be holy. So consecrate and holy is uh, really similar in ideas, right? And so God is asking for the people of Israel to set apart their firstborn childs, and this is going to be gods. And not just children, but also animals. In the instructions, God says, you will keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. And this Hebrew word for appointed times is something that we pointed out, again, back in the creation narrative. Um, Genesis 1, verse 14, on the days where God makes the sun, moon, and stars, day four of creation, God says that these lights in the sky are meant to mark out my appointed times with you. It's translated seasons, unfortunately, in many Bibles, because we're used to using astronomy to dictate our seasons. But God 
always brings up the same word in Hebrew, moed, these appointed times, to talk about dates with him. And what we're going to see at the end of Exodus, we see Moses meet with God in a tent of meeting. That word meeting in English is the Hebrew word moed. So all of um, you know the stars and sun and moon are meant to show us when we're supposed to meet God. They're reminders for our date with him. And I don't know if you're married, um, but if you're going to miss your anniversary with your spouse, that's going to be a really big deal. And so God orders the entire cosmos that we see from our earth for us to remember him and to meet with him. So that's a really big deal that we're uh, seeing picked up on here in the institution of Passover and consecrating of the firstborns, right? And so as we see this, these uh, further instructions about consecrating firstborns of both people and of the animals, some things can be redeemed, right? So if you have a son who is a firstborn, if you want to redeem your son, you give of a lamb. In the same way, if you have a donkey, the example that it gives here in chapter 13 is if you have a donkey, you can redeem it for a lamb as offering the lamb to God in its place. So all of a sudden we have this idea that a lamb can substitute the place of something else that has to be given to God, right? So the donkey or your firstborn son can be saved by giving of a lamb because that thing is the Lord's. Um, but if you don't want to redeem your donkey for some reason, you have to break its neck because you can't cheat God. You can't try and still use your donkey and say, oh, yeah, it's redeemed to God. No, you you have to either give of its life or give a lamb in its place. Again, huge ties into Christ being the sacrificial lamb, the Christ being the firstborn, the Christ pouring out his blood so that God will pass over in his wrath over our sins, over the judgment that we deserve. So, so much rich theology being brought out here. Anything else to add, Dylan? I do also want to point out that at the beginning of chapter 13, it talks a little bit about leaven and it continues this idea of how to celebrate Passover and talks about how all leaven in the house should be put away for seven days when celebrating Passover. And I just wanted to touch on that real quick because I thought it was interesting in my own reading of this, that the reason for that, at least as stated right here, is so that the Israelites would remember the haste with which they were ushered out of Egypt. So this was a very crazy traumatic sort of event where the firstborn in Egypt died. And then Pharaoh immediately calls in Moses and says, go. And they rush out in haste. They plunder the Egyptians. And then we get a little bit more instruction on Passover and the consecration of the firstborn, which is a very important concept that Corey just went over. And then we jump back into the narrative. And so from the consecration of the firstborn, we pick up into this, you know, really crazy and frantic event of the king of Egypt trying to get Moses and the Israelites out of there, right? And so he says, all right, just, just go and pray for us as you go. That's kind of the end of chapter 12. And then at the end of chapter 13, after all this, I want to skip down to the end of chapter 13. And we see the way in which Yahweh is going to 
lead his people. And he leads them back towards the Egyptians. He's almost trying to, I shouldn't say almost, he is trying to tempt the Egyptians to come back after the Israelites to chase him. He knows he's going to save his people. He knows his people are in any danger. Yahweh wants the Egyptians to think that the Israelites are confused. They're in a frantic and they're wandering around and he wants them to think, wait a minute, there goes all of our free labor. Let's go back and capture them again before we let them go for good. And so in this scene, we have Egyptian soldiers chasing down the Israelites to trap them with their backs at the Red Sea. Um, but we see the way in which God leads his people shown at the very end of chapter 13. He leads them by a pillar of cloud during the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to give them light. Right, And so this is the way in which Yahweh is going to lead his people from now on. But also, really quick little interruption, we have Moses taking the bones of Joseph. Because just as Joseph had said at the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verse 25, that his people must take his bones and bring them back to the land where his father's bones rest. Because he knows that you guys will come out of here. And he says, God will deliver you. There will come a time. And when God comes, do this. Remember me. Grab my bones. And so that's something we've been talking about, that God wants to bring his people back to the land. That's the big picture journey, but small picture journey, we're going to see them just get to Mount Sinai to worship him. The people finally get to the Red Sea, and it turns out that as they are leaving, the Egyptians go, what the heck did we do? We just lost our slave labor. Pharaoh's heart is hardened again. And so as they get to the Red Sea and their backs kind of get put up against the ocean, if you will. The Egyptians then draw near. And so the people go, oh my gosh, what the heck are we going to do? Did you just bring us out? We're going to die here. And then Moses goes and asks God, what are we going to do? And so in verse 15, we see the Lord say to Moses, why are you crying to me? Tell the people to go forward. Like, you idiot. It's kind of funny to me. I'm not sure if that's really what God was saying there. So Moses lifts up his staff and he stretches it over the sea. And miraculously, we see the sea divided with a wall of water on one side and the other. And the people are able to pass through on dry ground. And so we're going to pause here just a second and talk about this idea that is actually brought up later in the New Testament. And we've already brought it up ourselves in the podcast when we talked about Noah. And that's the idea of baptism. And the New Testament connects the idea of them passing through the Red Sea with the later idea in the New Testament of baptism. And we're going to see this consistently. It's actually a major theme, even in the Hebrew Bible, without the New Testament's explanation of the baptism, where we see people are actually drawn through water to do a few things. Uh, first off, we see them drawn through water in order to inaugurate a specific calling. And so we saw that in Noah, where he was kind of drawn through the flood to inaugurate his calling. We see that here in the Red Sea. We're going to see that with Joshua later on. And so they're drawn through the Red Sea to inaugurate a specific calling. Also, 
we see connected with this idea, this idea of cleansing. So being drawn through water, water cleanses, and water is going to be a cleansing thing throughout the scriptures. We're going to consistently see that water either purifies or cleanses. It even did that in Noah's time where it cleansed the earth. Actually, the idea there is that the earth kind of went through a cleansing baptism in a sense where it cleansed the world of all of the evil that was going on at the time. And so we see that set up here. The New Testament really does draw in a lot of those connections and illuminates it all the more. Before I move on, Cord, do you have anything else to say on that idea of baptism being drawn through the water, the sea? Great explanation, recap of the passing through the Red Sea and that this idea that we see in the New Testament that gets the name baptism, it starts early on. And so we see guys like Paul say, Oh, you remember back in the time of Moses or in the time of Noah? That was a type of baptism. So we can actually see that in the text. It's not like he's putting his own ideas into the text of something he sees. Like we see it here, right? We we see that there is purification happening as the Israelites walk through freely and come out the other side. The Egyptians are killed within the water as it closes in on them. So the evil gets buried under the water and God's people pass through. So yeah, we're going to see, although Moses has already been going, doing some ministry, this is like the start of his ministry. Although he was also passed through the waters of the Nile by means of his little baby ark, we saw baptism for Moses be the start of his ministry and calling already. But yeah, so at the end of this baptism scene at the end of chapter 14 verses 30 and 31 it says thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians so the people feared Yahweh and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses so up to this point we haven't seen the author get much reactions from the Israelites um, except for maybe after the brick supply was cut from the Egyptians, Moses' fellow Israelites um, were not in favor of what he was doing with his brother Aaron under Yahweh's command. Um, but so now we see that people react positively. As Dylan put it to me before the podcast, it's like things are clicking that, oh, maybe we should trust in Yahweh and we can trust in him. Right, So they fear Yahweh and believe in Yahweh and in Moses. So this is a, a really big claim. And just kind of keep that claim in the back of your mind. We're going to see this idea repeated a lot of the people's reaction to Yahweh, to Moses, what they're doing. Um, so here's the, the first big one that we should keep track of. So at the end of chapter 14, the people believed. And then we go into chapter 15, where we see Moses and the people of Israel sing a song to Yahweh. And this song is quoted a lot, especially in the Psalms. And this song is all about Yahweh being strong, that he is strong to give salvation, and that Yahweh is a man of war, right? And so this 
character Yahweh, he's not only good, he's strong, he's mighty to save, but we get this picture of him that he's a man of war. And that's something that um, I feel like today, at least in the churches I've been around, we don't talk about God as a warrior a lot, but that's going to be something that continues and is going to be heightened in the way in which Yahweh and his Messiah, little giveaway, um, the way in which they're going to be talked about, right? And so it attributes Yahweh's strength to his right hand. So that's a big figure of speech that we're going to continue to see about Yahweh or about um, someone who we want to call strong. So the Bible will say that their right hand did it, their dominant hand. In all this beautiful poem, we see at the end something we've seen a lot and we've seen continue to be promised. So I want to pull us down to chapter 15, verse 17, and it says, you talking about Yahweh will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode. And so we get back into focus. Okay, we're out of Egypt. We are freed. God is our salvation. And God has scared the Egyptians. He scared all the surrounding nations by this mighty act. But the song ends with bringing us back to, okay, we're going to meet God on Mount Sinai. And so he pulls us um, from what happened to what is about to happen by telling the story of this song. So pretty cool um, device the author uses. Pretty cool song indeed. It teaches us a lot about who God is, and what he has done. Excellent. So let's keep moving forward. Cordy did a great explanation on the song itself. And now we get to kind of the first of many woes. We get to the place Mara, and we see that the people who were just described as trusting God and trusting Moses now complain. People are out. They have been wandering now in the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and find no water. So when they come to Marah, they could not drink the water there because it was bitter. That's why it was called Marah. So the people grumble against Moses, and they say, what are we going to drink? So this is the first of what we're going to see as three different grumblings in our section today. That is 12 through 18. They grumble and Moses goes, um, I don't know, God, God, what do we do? And so Yahweh shows him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. And that's significant. Remember, we have talked about multiple times in the podcast so far, this theme of trees and mountains and high places and God, how they all seem to kind of correlate together. And whenever we see, generally speaking, anyway, whenever we see the word uh, tree or bush or or wood of any kind. It's just one Hebrew word, eights. Um, and so again, we see an eights. He throws an eights, that's the log, into the water, and it becomes sweet. Just a cool little tie-in there. There the Lord makes a statute and a rule to test them. So that's interesting. It says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commands and keep all of his statutes, uh, he's going to put none of the diseases of the Egyptians on them. He's going to be their healer. 
Um, and so that's really important because, again, another big theme that we've seen in the podcast so far is the idea of eyes and them being uh, basically the windows through which judgments are made. So if someone does what is right in their eyes in contrast to doing what is right in Yahweh's eyes, that is a bad thing. But if they do what is right in Yahweh's eyes, they follow Yahweh's judgment. They are actually doing what Yahweh wants and following his wisdom. The whole crux of the biblical issue is the fact that people want their wisdom over God's wisdom. So God is saying, do what is right in my eyes, and I won't do to you what I did to the Egyptians. I'll be your healer. Um, and then they go ahead and move on to the, from there, and they encamp by the water at Elim, and we move into chapter 16. It's kind of interesting that the people tested God by grumbling against Moses, and then God tests them, right? So just like a really interesting little aside there in the choice of language, and then we're going to go into some more testing. That's it. Carry on. Moving on to 16 then, in complaint number two. So the people set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people come to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. So what we have in this first sentence here is something positive. We're moving towards our mini goal. We are moving towards Sinai. Remember, that's where we're trying to get to first. And then on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Woo! Again. Complaint number two. And so this time they complain that they don't have any food. So they say, you brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. A little dramatic, I would suspect, but there it is. The Lord says to Moses at this point, behold, I'm about to rain down bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather day's portion. So basically the Lord instructs them and says, you shall gather for you enough for the day, but nothing more. And so the people go out and they gather this. And interestingly, those who gather more and gather enough for the day after, even though Moses says not to, it goes bad. It, it rots and turns uh, all maggoty and things. The Lord says, gather enough only for today. You're going to have to trust me for tomorrow. However, on the day before the Shabbat, the Sabbath, you are to gather a double portion. So you have enough for that day and enough for the Shabbat, the, the Sabbath. Um, and that way you will not have to work on Shabbat. And the Lord is really trying to make a point here. And remember at the very beginning of this podcast, we talked a little bit about this idea of rest. Remember God rests from his work on the seventh day of creation and basically invites people into that rest that he himself is participating in. And even now after the fall, God is still allowing for uh, some sense of participation in that rest. As a matter of fact, he's commanding it and making it possible that even in the wilderness where the people have to go and gather the food, he provides enough so that they can actually enter that rest on Shabbat. And then in the evening time, we see that quail comes. And so we have this weird flaky cornflakes-like bread stuff that rains down from heaven. And then in the evening time, quail comes down and it's enough for them to eat. So they grumble and God responds by actually providing for them food. 
th this chapter is really important to keep in mind um, as we get into a couple books from now, the book of Numbers. So remember these uh, stagings of quarrels and testings of God, and especially chapter 16. I'm not going to give anything away, but we're just going to tuck this one in the back pocket. That's all. And so the people of Israel are moving from the wilderness of sin by stages. So we already talked about they went from sin to Elim on their way to Sinai. And so in one of these cases, when they're in their stages, there was no water for the people to drink. Now keep in mind, we've already seen Yahweh provide water. We've seen him provide manna. The what is it is the literal translation of manna. Um, he's provided quail really close by. And so what are the people going to do here? They quarrel with Moses in verse 2 of chapter 17. Give us water to drink. And Moses brings it to the heart of um, their question, which they don't realize. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? That's right. Moses isn't doing any of this himself, but yet the people don't seem to get that. So although it seemed like they were getting it at the end of chapter 14 when Yahweh brought them through the Red Sea, like, oh, they feared Yahweh, they believed in him. But yet they're still attributing all these things back to Moses. And then they go so far in their grumbling and their thirst for water to say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Man, that's just such a huge accusation to be putting on Moses. And we're probably covering our eyes saying, oh, no, Yahweh hears them. They're not realizing it. But, man, what a disrespectful thing to say to Yahweh, right? But yet, Yahweh has an answer, right? Even as Moses comes and cries to Yahweh, fearing of his life before the people, Yahweh just says, okay, Take the staff with you that you struck the Nile with. Now go and strike the rock at Horeb. Right? And so he goes and he hits the rock and out of it, water comes out miraculously. And so that place is called Massah and Meribah because, well, Massah means quarreling and Meribah means testing because they quarreled with Moses and they tested Yahweh, wondering if Yahweh was even among them. So we have... Three instances in a row, pretty much, of the people rebelling, the people quarreling amongst themselves and amongst Moses, but Yahweh delivering. Okay, so there's three of those instances. And then we're interrupted by this battle. And there is this character named Amalek, representing this nation we'll know as the Amalekites. Amalek came and fought with Israel. Over at Rephidim. The big battle plan for this is Moses is going to stand at the top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand, and he's going to hold up the staff. And that, that's the battle plan he lays out to Joshua, his aide, the future successor of Moses. As long as Moses is holding his staff up above his head, Joshua and the Israelite army overwhelms. Amalek. But anytime his hands grew weary, it wouldn't. So what they did is he sat on a stone and Aaron and her 
held up his hands. So we have this really strange picture of a battle, but it makes sense in the context it's in, which we'll get to in just a second. Here, Yahweh says to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, and I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, Yahweh is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Yahweh gets this altar built for him and a writing in the book, which I'm sure is just way too short of a memorial. Um, but this is what Yahweh wants to show us because that's all he needs. Just know that he is there fighting for his people. It's not because of some battle plan, because of some mighty hero. It's because of God. But yet he wants to include his people somehow. And we go straight into a story in Exodus 18 where Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes in. Basically, in chapter 18, we have this interesting little aside where Jethro, if you remember him from earlier in the story, comes and actually visits Moses. In this sort of exchange, we see Jethro offer some wisdom to Moses. And so Moses is actually acting as kind of uh, judge, jury, and execution, I suppose, up until this point, where basically all of the people are coming up before Moses whenever they have a quabble. And so they're going, hey, Moses, you know, this dude took my flake of manna, and I'm so frustrated by it. And so Moses then is in charge of explaining God's instructions, God's Torah to these people, and then making decisions for them so that they basically know who gets what and is helping them fix their squabbles and just seems like a bit too much in Jethro's opinion. And so what Jethro does is Jethro suggests something very interesting. He says, hey, Moses, it looks to me as though you are taking on way too much. And instead of taking on every single squabble that Israel could possibly throw at you, why don't you do this? How about you train up a couple of good, godly men who do not take dishonest gain and take some of your responsibility and parse it out to a bunch of people and only handle the really big cases, the things that just none of your aides can handle, the stuff that has to be between you and Israel. And so Moses goes, you know what, that's that's kind of a good idea. So the interesting thing that I really wanted to highlight from this too is Jethro recommends that Moses teach the people of Israel the instructions, the Torah of God, which seemingly up until this point, Moses has kind of been the sole guardian of, but instead Jethro suggests, why don't you actually teach them this so they they know what the instructions actually are? And next week we're going to be getting into those instructions and why they're important. But for now, it's important that Jethro recommends that they be taught these things. It's something that, oddly enough, they hadn't been up until this point. What's really interesting in both the ending of chapter 17 and then all of chapter 18 that Corey pointed out to me is that it seems as though up until maybe the ending of 17 that the focus has really been on Moses as the leader. All of these things have kind of hinged on Moses being the intermediary between God and Israel. And now 
between the ending of chapter 17 and then Jethro's recommendation in chapter 18, we see that others are starting to become important. We see that this maybe heavy emphasis on Moses as sole leader is waning a little bit. And I think that's, you know, again, that's what the story is trying to set up. It's showing um, the people are looking to Moses and they're quarreling to Moses, even though it's things that God is doing. And then 17, it's it seems like that story is really out of place because it's a battle all of a sudden and there's hardly any details about it. But all we want to point out here is that 17 makes a lot of sense with 18, which could also seem like it's really out of place. But all that's to try and show, look at all that Yahweh is using Moses to do. And it's too much, right? And so Jethro says, it is not Tov. Um, going back to Genesis uh, 2 and 3, the trees in the middle of the garden, the one tree of Tov and Ra, the tree of good and bad. And we've seen a lot of um, wisdom being brought up using those key words. And so um, Jethro says, hey, it's not good that you're going to wear yourself out by taking on every single person's dispute. Every single person. So, like Dylan said, um, teach some people God's Torah and God's Hoke um, statutes. So the Hebrew word Hoke and the Hebrew word Torah is the things that Moses is going to impress on these trustworthy people. And um, we'll see more on those words. And again, just like everything, you got to stick it in your back pocket and we'll, we'll get to all these things. Um, but one last thing I want to take out of this, this reaction from Jethro, because remember Jethro hasn't been with Moses, but Jethro is coming to Moses with his wife and kids. And Jethro comes out, he rejoiced at the good that Yahweh had done. And it says in verse 10 of 18, Jethro blessed Yahweh. So remember, blessing has been a huge theme. Jethro says, blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. And the next verse, it goes on to say that I now know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Right, And so we're seeing the purpose that Yahweh had set out to do with the plagues, with the passing through the Red Sea, has come to fruition. From this um, other point of view, it, it has happened, right? And so we get a good deal about what is Tov in Ra in God's eyes, and the people are commissioned to do Tov in God's eyes. And even though the people say they believe, we have seen them so far only do Ra. They've only done bad. They've only complained and grumbled and not even acknowledging Yahweh. And they've only charged Moses with doing raw to them. So um, it's it's not going good, but yet we have glimmers of hope like the people going towards Mount Sinai. They're getting closer and closer. And so actually where we're leaving off at the end of chapter 18, they're going to be before the mountain of Sinai. So that'll come up next week. Looking forward to it. Remember, that is our mini goal for the moment. So that is going to be a really big turning point in the story. And we're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time on that next week and maybe even the week after. With that, however, we have come to the final chapter in our section for the day. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up there.
Guys, thank you for tuning into the podcast today. I hope you guys did enjoy the episode. Remember, guys, if you have not yet done so, or if you're new to the show and you want to get the context to these episodes, don't forget to listen to the other episodes preceding this one. They do, in fact, build on one another so that you can see the unified story or narrative as it unfolds. That is really what this podcast is dedicated to, is showing that the Bible is, in fact, a book. It's a story. It was written in a specific way in order to showcase its meaning, namely as a story. And so Corey and I have uh, undertaken this podcast in order to highlight the big themes of the story as they unfold. If you guys are blessed by the podcast, if you guys want to see it move forward into other people's lives and bless them as well, you can give the show a positive review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Those are the largest podcast platforms. They're the ones that help the algorithm the most. So leaving a positive review on there is a fantastic way to do that. Also, if you guys want to help out the show, uh, you can pray for it and you can donate to it if you would like. It is paid for completely out of pocket. There are expenses that go along with the show. So if you would like to help keep it on the air, you can do that by going to our website, thebibleisastory.com, and clicking on Donate or going to our Patreon page, so Scripture Chronicles. Finally, if you guys want more information or to see information as it becomes readily available, you can check out our website, as I already mentioned, thebibleisastory.com, or check out the Facebook page. And if you want to ask us any questions or communicate with us, the email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. Thank you guys for tuning into the show today. Have a blessed rest of your whatever the heck time of day it is. And shalom. Shalom. Adios. Adios. Nailed it.